0: we pray with me Lord as we've just sung you are holy and you are worthy worthy of all of our praise of all honor Lord you are completely and utterly unique and glorious you are God and we thank you for that we thank you for the opportunity that you give us to sing praise to your name, to participate in the, the song of all creation that sings glory and honor to you, their creator. And Lord, we, we pray and we think along the lines of, of Psalm 103 this morning that says, The Lord is merciful and gracious. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You won't always chide. You won't always keep your anger forever. You don't deal with us according to our sins. You don't repay us according to our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, Lord, so great is your steadfast love toward us who fear you. As far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. And as a father shows compassion, To his children, Lord, you have shown us compassion, those who fear you. For you know our frame, you remember that we are dust. You know our weaknesses. And yet you love us, and yet you have given us Christ. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us to show us grace, to show us mercy, to show us love, and to provide a way for us To have forgiveness of sin. And so we thank you. We praise you for who you are this morning. And Lord, we recognize that that song of holy, holy, holy will not only be sung by one nation or one people group at the end of time, but by myriads upon myriads of people from every tongue and tribe and nation. And we are so grateful for that. We're grateful for the opportunity that you give us to participate in your gospel being spread throughout the world. And Lord, as we think of um, the world and missions, missionaries, Lord, we pray for uh, the Mingos. Lord, they have been serving in Nicaragua for many years and Lord, we, we grieve with the Mingo family now at the news of the loss of of Adrian, who has passed away recently because of cancer. Lord, will you be with the Mingo family? Will you especially watch over Cheryl as she learns to uh, live life without her husband, which is, uh, I can't even imagine how hard that is. But Lord, be her strength and be her comfort in this time. And Lord for their six children for Caleb for Noelia for Michael Lorena Alexandra and Natalia Lord losing their father I'm sure has uh, has just been very hard especially considering the the quickness of the diagnosis of cancer in February and then his his death just about a week ago Lord uh, Give them grace and give them support through friends and family to, to know how to continue on in their lives um, without him. Lord, we pray that we, as a church who supports them from, from far away, would be faithful to pray for them, would be faithful to send cards of encouragement and do all that we can to help them in this, this time. Lord, be their peace and be their strength. Lord, we ask for the work of the mission uh, agency that they uh, founded in Mission International. We just hope that the the work that they started through that would continue. We pray for uh, the board of directors as they have important decisions as to how to continue uh, ministry. And Lord, we just ask that uh, many would continue to hear your gospel and to respond through the work of Inerges. And Lord, we pray for the country of Nicaragua, where the Mingos served. We pray for the church, for true believers there, that they would proclaim the gospel, that they would seek justice for those who are around them, who are poor and who are needy. Lord, we pray for the instability of the government, that you would do a mighty work that you would raise up people to be leaders who love you and who seek truth and justice, Lord. We pray for gospel-centered unity among different denominations of believers in that country. May they lay aside their their small differences and find unity in you and in your gospel. And Lord, we pray that there would be a, a revival of people who who love you, who love their neighbors, and who preach the gospel day in and day out. And Lord, we also turn our eyes to our own country, and we are grateful. We are thankful for the freedoms that we enjoy here. We're thankful that we can gather and worship this morning. We're thankful that we can sing of who you are, that we can speak freely of what you have done for us through Christ. We ask that you would continue to guard those freedoms through our leaders and through our politicians. Lord, cause them to appreciate and fight for truth and for those basic rights. Lord, we pray for our Washington Washington State House of Representatives and Senate. As those bodies meet to make decisions, will you give them wisdom? Will you give them clarity? Will you help them to know that there is truth? And will you guide them to make decisions according to it? Lord, we pray for Governor Inslee. We ask that you would continue to give him wisdom. We ask that you would surround him with people who, who would be bold to share the gospel with him. And we hope that, that you would save him, help him to recognize his sin and his need of you. Lord, give him wisdom as he makes decisions on On many things, but in particular, how to continue responding to uh, COVID, uh, help them to be well-informed, help them to make good decisions. And Lord, we pray for um, us as as a church, as your representatives, that we would be good examples uh, to those around us in how we respond to government. Lord, we recognize that uh, Romans 13 says, you establish governments and you do it for your purposes. So help us to see that. Help us to be a part of what you are doing. Lord, we also thank you for the local church. We thank you that uh, we have a presence here in Edgewood, and we're thankful for faithful churches all around us. This morning, we think of uh, Rainier Hills, and just ask that you would bless that congregation. We pray for their pastor, Paul Majak. Will you give him clarity of speech and illumination to be able to know your word and to clearly communicate it to the people? We pray that he would be a good husband and a good father, that he would be an example to his wife and children of what your steadfast, compassionate love looks like. Lord, will you give the congregation grace and practical ways to be able to focus on living out their faith in their community and in their family. Lord, we pray that, that you would help all of them to be faithful to represent their core values of gospel and family and missions. And Father, we turn to uh, thinking of our own congregation, and we know that there are many who are going through difficult uh, situations or in Hard, um, hard circumstances. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace to love each other well, to support each other, to pray for each other. And Lord, we are thankful this week for uh, Pat Thatcher. He's looking to to come home this Thursday, and we are so thankful for the healing that you have um, that you have brought to him. Lord, will you uh, give Ellen? And he just uh, a sweet reunion and help them to adjust to uh, life at home again uh, with with some more special needs that he has. And Lord, we just are so thankful that that they get to be together again. Lord, we pray for those dealing with sickness, everything from common colds up to, to cancer. You are the God of healing. And so we pray that you would be working through doctors, in those people's bodies to, to heal them. Lord, we also are looking forward to uh, the meeting that we have after our service, and we um, just take it as, as a joy to be able to gather together. We pray for um, a good time where we can share different changes and different uh, things that are going on in our church. We pray for love and patience and joy and unity among us as we meet together. And Lord, we pray also for just our whole congregation. Um, I was reading through Colossians and was just impressed by Paul's prayer for the Colossians. And so we, we pray this for ourselves. Lord, will you help us to be faithful in prayer Will you help us to be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding? Lord, will you help us to walk in a manner that is worthy of you? Will you help us to be fully pleasing to you? Will you help us to bear fruit in every good work and increase in our knowledge of you? Lord, we pray that each of us would be strengthened in your power according to your glorious might for endurance and patience with joy. And Lord, now we thank you for the faithful preparation of Pastor Jeff. We thank you for the opportunity to turn our eyes to Jonah and learn from him. Lord, help us to draw near to you in our heart and in our mind by hearing your word preached this morning. We ask this all in your name. Amen.
1: Thanks, brother. Jonah chapter four. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Jonah chapter four as we conclude this short series. So I was thinking this week through the chapter and winding it down. Hope is a risky thing. The more we look forward to something, the greater the chance of being let down. As parents, uh, we want to shield our kids from dashed hopes. Of uh, parents with small kids, we sometimes don't tell them what we're going to do until we're right about to do it. Whether that's going to the park or going to the zoo, we just keep it to ourselves as to not get their hopes up in case something changes. And their hopes are now dashed. And if I'm being honest as a parent, we don't tell them because we'll get a million questions in the weeks before it. But hope for us as adults can also be risky. When you have your heart set on a day outside to rest and relax, to go for a hike, only to find out the weather has turned sour, our hopes can follow. It may seem safer to always be pessimistic and anticipate something won't work out so that your hopes won't be dashed. No doubt all of you have had your hopes crushed at some point in your life, and it always hurts. Proverbs thirteen twelve says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. For some people, when their dreams come crashing down, they just dream something new. But for others, at some point in their life, they decide to never hope again. They're just going to stop dreaming. But having hope is distinctively human. Regardless how life has gone for you, you can probably remember times growing up where you had hopes and dreams. You at one time looked forward to the future. As children, we anticipated our favorite dessert or a fun vacation or a birthday. And as teenagers, we, we hoped for a break from school. For weekends to relax, being able to watch a new movie that's come out. As adults, we we hope for security, for peace, for opportunities to enjoy life, unfettered with any worry or doubts. But sooner or later, we learn that not all of our hopes come to happen. We hope, and then we are disappointed. And we long for something, and it's pulled out from underneath us. Our hopes can be crushed more times than we'd like to admit Dashed hopes begin with a simple desire. You, you want something, and what you want is probably a good thing, such as marriage, or a good family, or a good relationship, a good job, good health, or just even a day off, a week off. And gradually and gradually, the desire gets stronger. It seems attainable, and you can imagine it now. You can almost taste it. You can, you can see it coming to happen, just as you've dreamed, and then it vanishes. In a blink of an eye, it's gone. And What do you do then? Dashed hopes can lead to frustration. Dashed hopes can lead to frustration with God. And frustration with God will lead to imposed spiritual isolation or withdrawal. And spiritual isolation leads to self-pity and sometimes depression. Everyone's on a journey either to love God more or to resent God more. And how you deal with your hope and hopes you have is part of that journey. The prophet Jonah illustrates this clearly in his autobiography that we've been looking at the last few weeks. Jonah was an ancient Israelite. His hope was set on Israel being able to attain once again the heights it had when they served under King Solomon and victoriously Israel's enemies would be eliminated forever. The kingdom was doing relatively well at the time, but other prophets were already prophesying about an exile that would come at the hands of a country beyond Damascus, as Amos said. And all indicators pointed to Assyria as the future enemy that would take Israel down. They hoped that it wouldn't happen, that it wouldn't have to to happen to their people. If possible, they would work so that it wouldn't happen. And when we came to Jonah chapter one, Jonah was given a mission to go to Nineveh, the capital city of the flourishing Assyrian empire, and to call out against it for their evil had come up before me, the Lord said. And it seems like that's an ideal job for a patriot like Jonah to finally preach judgment against Israel's potential oppressors. Perhaps his hopes their hopes of thriving as a country would come true. But as we read and as we followed through, Jonah resisted because he knew of his merciful God. He knew God was a God of patience, a God of long-suffering, a God that could forgive. The message he was to preach would open the door for the possibility of repentance. And Jonah wanted the door shut. He wanted it locked. He wanted the key thrown away. He didn't want to warn them. If they repented, they would most likely find mercy with God and God would spare them. And then Israel, his people, his country would be in jeopardy. And that thought devastated Jonah. What would happen to his people if Nineveh repented and so he runs right we, we follow that Jonah says I'm leaving and God arrests him with a fish and Jonah's called a second time and he goes to preach an eight word sermon yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown and the people from the lowest to the highest in the city what do they do they repent and God has compassion on them. And Jonah's hopes were dashed. He had hoped that they would be destroyed, but God had different plans. It's okay to have plans in your life, just recognize that God has the right to change your plans. He had hoped that he could return home as a champion in the eyes of his countrymen, but now he lives defeated, wishing that he could just die. What we find in Jonah chapter 4 is Jonah resenting God. Sometimes there are particular darknesses that come over those that work hardest in the service of the Lord. For ministry workers, pastors, missionaries, they sometimes develop a view that the more you do for God, the easier it is to feel that somehow God owes you. Which is plainly wrong. Jonah is experiencing this friend God owes you nothing he's never been in debt and Jonah will learn a hard lesson and the Lord is willing for him to endure this and that we could glean from his mistakes so here's the main idea here's the main thrust of this sermon and really the book God wants our hearts to be conformed to his merciful heart for all people God wants our hearts to be conformed to his merciful heart for all people. God is a merciful God. He's a long-suffering God, and he not only shows patience with the Ninevites, he is going to show patience with his prophet Noah. So here are the th- three points. If you take notes, it'll be helpful to you if you want to jot these down. First is outright anger. Second, object lesson. Third, overflowing mercy. So number one, outright anger. Outright anger. God was bringing Jonah to a point in his life where his heart would be shown by his lips. God was going to teach Jonah that it's not what goes into our lives that causes defilement, but what comes out of our hearts. How we react is often a better thermometer of our heart than how we act. Jonah just finished preaching in the city, and it seems that Jonah will utter these next few words in chapter 4, these first four verses, while he's still in the city. So, picture with me Jonah standing in the midst of the people as they mourn over their sin against God in sackcloth and ashes. And look at verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Jonah sees the repentance of the king down to the people, and he's mad. One commentator said, Jonah's reaction stops us in our tracks. The very strong expression indicates that Jonah's anger welled up from the depths of his being, like that of a child throwing a temper tantrum. Such anger is totally irrational and yet it must must have had an explanation. God's prophet is throwing a hissy fit in the city of Nineveh as the people repent and turn to God. Let that sink in. Jonah literally hated what God had done in Nineveh. It's shocking. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah grew up along with everyone in Israel knowing that God was gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. But Jonah had a problem. He felt that God was too slow to anger. Does Jonah really want our God to be quick to anger? It seems that way. Do you really want a God who's quick to anger? Do you really want a God who has no grace and no mercy? Jonah says, I knew that you are a gracious God, a merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He's quoting Genesis, what Pastor Ryan prayed earlier. He knows the scriptures. But what we have here is Jonah taking God's character of what he disclosed of himself in Genesis and he's turning it against God. He turns God's character back on God as a complaint. He's taking God's character and poking holes in it. God, God, you're too gracious. God, you're too patient. God, how dare you forgive wicked people? Are you just at all? And what Jonah's prayer shows us is a spiritual infantile regression. So much so that he's, he's ready to check out of life. It says in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah is so angry that Nineveh repented that he would rather die. Think about that. Jonah, God's messenger, God's prophet, is so angry with God that he would dare save his enemies that he wants out. And as we look back over the book, it becomes clear that this was probably Jonah's intent all along. That's why he'd rather run away. That's why he was, it seems, willing to be tossed overboard. Jonah always wanted to be out of God's service when he received that first message in chapter one. He'd rather die than preach grace to wicked people. And yet, our gracious God, oh, God's grace, his response in verse four, he's so patient with people like Jonah, like us. He says, the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Aren't you amazed at the patience and grace and mercy our God. He's so kind to this wicked prophet. Friends, it is pure wickedness that what Jonah is saying here, he would rather those people in the city get punishment right now than to have salvation. He is showing God and us what he truly wants in life, who he truly wants to serve, and it wasn't God. When we say, I won't serve you, God, until you give me X, fill in the blank, then X, that fill in the blank, is, is, your, is your true bottom line. It's, it's your highest love. It's your real God. The thing that you love most and trust in most to bring satisfaction to you. And, and, and what was Jonah's X, his fill in the blank? It was the destruction of Nineveh and the safety of his people. He chose country over God. He loved justice more than God. He loved his success more than God. He loved winning more than God. Love of country and your people can be a good thing, but when it becomes an ultimate thing, so much that you're willing to destroy others in word or deed, then it becomes an idol. If love for your country's interests leads you to exploit people or in this case to root for entire class of people to be spiritually lost then you love your nation more than God. This is idolatry. This is wicked. God's mercy is not burdensome to Jonah. He simply hates that mercy is shown to those that he believes don't deserve it. Especially non-Israelites. If God's mercy towards people that are different than you makes you angry, you need to find out why. Maybe, just maybe, God allows your enemies, the people you despise, to flourish and to come back to him over and over and over again to show you that God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love so that you will worship him. Do you have this same outright anger towards other people that Jonah is displaying here? And the question that God gives Jonah, he says to us, do you have the right to be angry? When we feel like God has taken away our dreams or hopes Ask the question, Do I have the right to be angry? When another group of people that you feel don't deserve mercy, you don't deserve sympathy, do we have the right to be angry? That's point number one. Point number two, an object lesson. Jonah has seemed to had enough in the city. Verse 5 Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Rather than staying in the city to further preach, to show people the way to Yahweh, Jonah leaves the city and places himself above the city to watch. To watch for what? I think to watch for destruction. Possibly. Jonah sits east of the city to see if God will rain down fire in judgment. I believe that Jonah wants to see if Nineveh would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Jonah sits and makes a booth. Kind of like when you pull out your uh, camping chairs to watch fireworks. He makes a booth and chairs to see if God would rain down fire sulfur and fire on people. It's possible right now to assess Jonah's full position in this book. Geographically, he's outside of Nineveh. Chronologically, he's observing the days of revival. But spiritually, he's in a dangerous position. It is apparently possible to be present and witness the blessing of God falling in a city with enormous power to see them demonstrate visible repentance and long to be somewhere else disgusted. Jonah is a miserable person. His enemies receive mercy and he hates it. When Christians care more for their own interests and security than for the good and salvation of other people, different than them, different politics, different races, different statuses, then they're sinning just like Jonah. They have put their identity in themselves than as saved children of God. And as Christians, we can too easily fall into the same view of outsiders that Jonah is experiencing here. But God, in his love and mercy, not only for Nineveh, but for Jonah, goes after his heart. Verse 6, the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. The verb translated appointed is also translated provided, which is the Hebrew word manna. It's the same word that is turned into a noun in Exodus, Exodus, Referring to bread that God provides for the Israelites to eat when they're in the wilderness. And what we learn here is that God provides for our comforts, and God provides our losses, and He even provides our trials. Three times God provides here in verses six through eight. Do you see them? You need to underline them if it's your Bible. God appointed in verse 6 a plant that it made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. In verse 7, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so it, that it withered. In verse 8, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that, it was, so, so that he was faint. God provides comfort, He provides a loss, and He provides a, lo- a trial. You might think that God provided the vine and that He allowed the worm and allowed the east wind, but that's not what the Bible says. God appointed the vine, God appointed the, the worm, and He appointed the east wind. He provided all three. And the author wants us to understand clearly that God was behind each of these. God is sovereign. Providence means that every detail of your life is ordered by the kindness of God who works in all things, the evil and the good, for your ultimate joy. And this book is peppered with God's providence. From the mariners who cast lots to fall on Jonah, to the fish that scoops him up at the right moment, to a plant that grows quickly. To the worm that comes to destroy the plant and to the winds that obey his command. God's providence is seen in this book if we pay attention. When God's providence determined to give Jonah shade, he was happy. When God's providence determined to make him faint, Jonah's angry. When God's providence sends a fish to rescue him, Jonah's thankful. When God's providence allows the Ninevites to repent, Jonah's mad. Jonah likes mercy. He thinks it's a pretty cool thing. You know, all the humans in this book that called out to God for mercy, they receive mercy. The mariners in the boat receive mercy. Jonah and the fish receive mercy. And the people in the city receive mercy. Jonah likes mercy, but Jonah doesn't like seeing mercy given to people that in his mind don't deserve it. Jonah is very confident in his view of justice. Jonah is sure that there are some people who don't deserve God's mercy, and he's angry that God won't consult him on his view. You know, if we were to use fairness as a standard in this book, then Jonah should have died in the water. He should have drowned when he was tossed overboard or at least digested by the fish. He had abandoned God. He had mocked God by running and ignoring him to get on the boat. And it would only have been proper for God to strike him down. Yet God showed him mercy. But Jonah's memory is short and the journey from the fish to Nineveh is long. Jonah forgets the mercy he received and he wants justice for his enemies. Jonah needed shade now as he's up on this hill. He needed rest, but God knew he needed something more than that. Rest without repentance is never adequate. Jonah needed to see his own wicked heart. And so he graciously uses an object lesson to show him his heart. Verses 6-8 through are not only a great object lesson for Jonah, they're a great object lesson for us. The vine was God's gift to Jonah to bring comfort and joy and blessing. What's your vine? What brings you comfort and joy and blessing? Where do you see the kindness of God in your life? The vine brought comfort, blessing, and joy to Jonah, but the worm brought sorrow, disappointment, and loss. What's your worm? What is brought sorrow in your life what has god taken away from you where have you experienced loss the vine brought comfort blessing and joy the worm brought sorrow disappointment and loss and now the east wind brought pain and affliction and a distress what's your east wind what aggravates your life What do you wish would just go away? We need to pause and answer these questions, friends. If not, our life will strongly copy that of Jonah and his testimony isn't great. Jonah's example here is for us to learn about ourselves and diagnose ourselves so that we can be more like Jesus and not like Jonah. Jesus came to endure this life and to take sin upon himself and he brought 12 men into the circle to train and to preach and to serve. They were, I'm sure, a vine of comfort and joy to him. But then the worm came into his life, and they all left him in that fateful night. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. Jesus was arrested, charged, and taken away to die. He was all alone. And then the east wind blew into Jesus' life, when he was not only deserted by his friends, but he was scourged, he was mocked, And he was crowned with thorns. And then Jesus was nailed to a cross. Plunged into deep darkness. And in his affliction, he cried out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ endured the worm and the east wind so you and I could be brought into eternity under God's eternal vine. Can't you see how much God loves his people. He went to the cross for our wicked hearts. And God's love extends to all humanity since he made all people in his image. And to show the incredible breadth of God's love, Jesus taught that God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And Jesus calls his children to love our enemies and to pray for them. God doesn't just give us this command without fulfilling himself. Paul says in Romans 5.10, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Friend, if you're here and you're not trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, you're still God's enemy but God has made a way for you to be his friend. And that was through sending his son Jesus to come and live the life that you could never live, to die the death that you could never die for the sins that you couldn't pay for so that you could be saved and live eternally with him. Friends, God knows you. He knows how you have turned away from him, and yet he isn't disgusted by you. He isn't holding you at arm's length until you get your act together. No, he's calling you to himself. That you would turn to Jesus in faith this morning and trust in him alone. Christians here this morning, are you more like Jonah or Jesus? A vine-centered person is one who has taken up with the joy of God's gifts that God gives, and they end up being more in love with the gifts than with God. God brings good gifts to his children, but don't love the gifts more than God. We need to receive God's gifts gratefully, but we need to hold God's gifts lightly. We need to love God more than the gifts that he gives us. So don't live for the vine. The vine will pass away. Live for God. He will never pass away. So we've seen the first two. Third is overflowing mercy. God's not done with Jonah. He's still pursuing him. And I find it phenomenal. And I wonder when will God grow tired of chasing sinners? We are so quick to give up on people, but not God. He is graciously and mercifully pursuing others and pursuing us. He says in verse 9 But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pitied the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? There it is, the triad of unmet expectations, anger, and self-pity. Jonah has all three, and they lead to thoughts of death for himself. Jonah would rather die than his enemies have a chance to live. Despite all that God has done for Jonah, all the lessons that he has taught him, the tremendous situations that God brought in his life to show him his heart, Jonah had not learned the lesson that immortal souls of men are the most precious thing to God. And I was reflecting this week of how hard it would be to have Jonah as a friend. I thought I would struggle to be around Jonah. After seeing his heart displayed, how he has treated people who are made in the image of God and how flippant he is, sometimes it's disgusting to see sin unaddressed in other people. I recognize that there are some of you who have struggled to come back to church. There are some that are logged on right now who stay home because of people right here, because of how people have handled life, COVID or politics or racial tensions. And you might wonder if you could ever come back and fellowship with others at church. I've heard concern concerns. You wonder if you'll ever be able to look people in the eye of how they've acted on social media or over email or in conversations. And friend, when we're confronted by the sins of others it's easy to grow disgusted but if we're filled with disgust over the actions of others have we forgotten all that we have done towards God you know my thoughts of how I could hang out with Jonah fled pretty quickly and I wonder how could people hang out with me See, God knows us all the way down to the core of our being. And it's easy, it's quick to forget all the depths of compassion and mercy that God has shown us and how quick we are to not show that to others. Friend, if this is you, and you have twinges of self-righteousness, you need to spend time with the Lord and ask him to show you your heart. We are not as righteous as we think we are. And friend, if you're staying away from church... You're hurting yourself, and you're hurting us. And so I want to encourage you to reach out to an elder this week. We want to shepherd you through it. We want to listen and care for you. But you can't stay there. You can't just continue to stay away. God asks the same question. Do you do well to be angry? Are you right in being angry? And the call is the same for Jonah as it is for us, to love others. Which might mean you need to show them their sin with love and grace and patience and to walk with them. They are people made in the image of God. Remember James says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Jonah here had... No right to be angry over this loss. And God is saying to him, Jonah, you did nothing to make this plant grow. You showed no labor intending to it. It is a creature of a day. And why is it that you feel so much concern over this plant and, sh- and yet show no concern over 120,000 people in Nineveh who were created in my image? The moms and the dads and the children that make up that city They have souls. They are people. And he's saying, how can you care more about this plant and not about people? That is teaching Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh? Pity here can be expressed as to show mercy, to show special kindness. Pity here is more than Sympathy. It moves into action to take and to assist someone else. To show them pity means we move closer to them and to show them love. The human beings that surround us cannot be regarded as expendable. And God is saying to Jonah, if you're angry enough to die because of this plant, should you not be compassionate enough to live for these people? Jonah cared more for plants than for people. Do we care more for things than we do for people? Do we care more for the things in our garage and our backyards than we do for our neighbors? Do we care more for our books or knowledge than the checkout person at the grocery store? Do we care more for our clothes or our smartphones than the people that walk the streets? when you sit next to someone on the airplane the next time or stand near them in a grocery store, you need to remind yourself that God made that person. And God cares about that person. He knows that person and God takes interest in that person, whether you do or not. This book Screams at us, church, that God cares for his enemies as well as as his friends. Does that shock you? Or do you feel like we're we're up here? We're the church. And they're way down here. God cares for the liberal city of Seattle. He cares for the homeless. God cares for those that are addicted to drugs, who grew up in a home with parents addicted to drugs, who never finished school, who can't stay employed. God cares for those officials who legislate laws that protect trees more than infants. God cares for angry politicians on either side of the divide. God cares for the violent murderers. God cares for the wicked thieves. God cares for people that you might think don't deserve a second chance. God cares for people outside of this church. Do we? When God says there's 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, I believe this is a description of people who have lost their moral compass. They're no longer able to discern between good and evil. Friends, blindness is not a refusal to see, but an inability to see. And I'm afraid that we have forgotten this. Think about that group of people that get under your skin and they annoy you. You need to grow in compassion for them. You need to reflect on the human condition in relation to that person. They might be your enemy, but God cares for them. God loves his enemies and does good for them. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew that I read earlier. You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. Do we view those that oppose us the same way that God views them? Do we see see our sin of neglect or of care? Maybe you don't resent the thought of your enemies being saved. Or maybe you do. Yet perhaps you are strikingly unconcerned about the fate of so many of God's creation. Have you considered that your lack of concern for hundreds of thousands of God's creatures, people made in the image of God, is a matter that is of significant grief to God? God says to Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons. And don't forget, here, God is announcing that he is the God of the Gentiles, too. God is bigger than Jonah thought. His love extends farther than Jonah thought it should extend. You know, when God first calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. He heads to Joppa to get on a boat. Remember? Do you know when Joppa is mentioned again in the Bible? At the end of Acts 9, when Peter raises a woman from the dead in Joppa. And immediately after that, we read the story of the first Gentile convert. God gives a Gentile named Cornelius a vision to send for Peter so that he can come share the good news of the gospel with him. And while Cornelius' messenger is still making his way, God gives Peter a vision teaching him... That God will have his gospel go to all nations, and he will involve his people in this task. And so Jenna, J- excuse me, Jonah set out from Joppa to go and preach, and Peter is sent out from Joppa to go and preach. There's no coincidence there. But Peter too struggled with showing love to Gentiles. He was struggling with prejudice, a preconceived idea of Gentiles' unworthiness of the gospel. But later in this passage in Acts, verse 34, 10, 1034, his testimony is clear. He says, truly understand that God shows no partiality. I think it's hard to remove Jonah's ethnicity from his reaction in chapter 4. He was a nationalist of the most dangerous kind. He was one who believed that defending his own territory and living for the benefit of his own kind meant having an antagonism towards those that are not like him. And he hoped that God would share his views. John MacArthur said in the sermon from Galatians series about Peter's racial prejudice, quote, we saw racism even in the day of Jonah where he didn't want to see Gentiles repent. Jews resented, hated Gentiles, and they kept separate, end quote. Jonah and his nationalist spirit was driven to hate those that were different from him, a different race of people. And ultimately, it drove Jonah to hate God as well. Sinclair Ferguson said that as a church, we must never be conditioned by the national environment rather than by the word of the gospel. Our prejudices need to be exposed just as they were in Jonah's life. Once exposed, they must be destroyed by grace. Well, I need to wrap things up. I wonder if we stopped at the end of chapter three that we might say the theme of the book is that God saves his enemies. And that certainly is one theme of the book. But when we go into chapter four, we learn that God still wants more. Chapter 4 teaches us that God wants Jonah's heart to be conformed to his merciful heart for all people. And that's the point for us as well. That God is pursuing our hearts to be conformed to his merciful heart. If the heart of one of God's prophets can be so wrongly hardened to God's priorities, to love and to mercy, how much more do we need to pay attention to our own hearts? What Jonah wanted was a God made in his own narrow-hearted image, a God with his own prejudices who would only come into fellowship with sinners under certain restrictive conditions. And there were elements of Satan's character in Jonah's heart, not God's character. What about us, friends? Is there more of Satan's character in our hearts than that of God? God wants our hearts to be conformed to his heart for all people. The book of Jonah also shows us that God is more committed to people than his children are. God has always been more committed to reaching the world than his own people have been. And we need to ask ourselves, is there any coldness in our hearts toward the things that God's heart is warmed, the things he shows love and mercy and compassion for? In this chapter, Jonah is concerned over a plant and God is concerned over people. What are you concerned with most? Here's some things of points of application. If you don't get these, I can give them to you later, but some things to give thought to. Number one, do we ever, like Jonah, feel that God is not quick enough to judge someone for their sin? When someone does you wrong, do you feel that vindication needs to come quickly and you need to be shown to be right? If you're filled with the desire to be vindicated, then have you forgotten all that God has done for you? Have you forgotten the depths of compassion and mercy that God has shown you? Friends, we need to be free of the desire for vindication and rest in Jesus Second, do you ever, with Jonah and the vine, feel entitled to creature comforts? Have you set your heart on satisfying and having a stable life more than God? Having a comfortable home over having people come visit. Having a healthy bank account over giving to those in need. Having a relaxing weekend over serving at the church. We need to watch out, friends. We can't put our hopes in things of this world. We need to hope in Jesus. Number three, are you ready to reach out to the Ninevites in our own cities? I really wonder if God has not brought the world to our doorstep simply because we, as American Christians, have gotten lazy and self-satisfied to go out to the world. How many Ninevites live around us who know nothing of God? And how are we doing at establishing relationships with them? Four. We need to be ready to support those that are leaving the comfort of their homeland to serve Ninevites outside of their country with the gospel. We, as a church, regularly support missionaries who are taking the gospel to to Ninevites. And friend, you can join us by praying for them and encouraging them to continue their work and financially supporting them. Well, I'm sure there's more here. I'm sure there's application that you've seen as you've walked through Jonah. But I wonder as we end here, is there a group of people that you don't particularly care for? And maybe you've experienced a certain type of injustice at their hands whether it's rich people, or white people, or women, or men, or Germans, or Japanese, or Muslims, or Catholics, or tall people, or smart people, or Republicans, or Democrats. Whatever the group is. Even if you've experienced pain because of that group of people, you need to know that God's heart is bigger than yours and he wants the truth of the gospel to go to that people. Friends, don't be like Jonah. Take the gospel to them joyfully. Tell them of our God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even us who were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace we've been saved. And he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I pray that we as a church would be eager to take the gospel to any group as God would lay it on our hearts to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your continuing grace in our lives. You are rich in mercy toward us. And we don't deserve it. We deserve hell. We deserve to be forgotten. We deserve to be cast aside, but you won't have it. And you have chased us down And you have rescued us. And we thank you, Father, for your love. (laughs) And we ask that you would help us. Help us to not hope in ourselves, but to hope in you. God, we ask that you would help us to love others, to see them the way that you see them. Help us to be gospel people with hope outside of ourselves and to share that hope voraciously until you take us home. And so we pray in Jesus' mighty, holy, and hope-producing name. Amen.